You're listening to Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet about movies. My name is Cameron James, Alexi Toliopoulos is here, and uh, before we begin our Mm -hmm. our podcast, we would like to break the news to the world (laughs) that Queen Elizabeth II has officially passed away. I'm sure... She has... Passed from this realm. Yeah, yeah, she's gone. She's we we lost her. We lost her tragically. It it is official now. It is. We are recording this several days after Mm. it was announced, Mm. and we've been watching the news to make sure that it is true, and that she has not re risen. She's not resurrected herself. Which which has happened in the past um, with several people. I believe there was a woman in Russia who Mm -hmm. died. And then three days later, she awoke for a moment, took a little look around Mm -hmm. and said, you know what? I'm going back. I'm going back. (laughs) Yeah. Take me back. Later, squad. Yeah. (laughs) And there's, of course, a very famous story about a fella from Nazareth from Mm. quite some time ago. I'm not familiar with this one, but can can you fill me in on this? Who's this? Well, he is a guy known, I believe, as Jesus. Okay. I've not. All right. I've only read about it. I've not heard too much, uh-huh. but interesting guy from what I understand. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe he was inspired by the Jesus from um, the um, Big Lebowski, <laughs> or from my favorite movie, <laughs> The Jesus Rolls, the spin-off of the Big Lebowski. <laughs> but uh, if anyone is hearing the news about Queen Elizabeth for the first time on this podcast, take a moment. You know, chill, relax, mm-hmm. breathe in, breathe out. She may be gone, but she will not be forgotten. And we now have King Charles to look after us. Oh, yes. The bitch is back. It's exciting because, um, you know, everyone already knows this about King Charles, but there's those, like, really horny transcriptions of his, like, late night oh. sex calls with Camilla. People people don't know. I was at a party last night and, like, people <laughs> talking about it go, oh, yeah, the tampon guy, he's going to be the king. It's crazy. The guy that wished he was his girlfriend's tampon. I'm like, yuck, he's such a freak. (laughs) This is the the first time in history, I reckon, Mm. that there's on the record proof that the king is like into some kinky ass shit. (laughs) Like the first time in in history, in the the history of the monarchy, that there's a transcription Mm. and a recording of the king saying that he wishes he was a tampon inside his girlfriend's vagina. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. It's a wild time to be alive. Wild time. So exciting. I'm so excited for this next chapter in the monarchy, the aristocracy. Me too. Yeah, guess what? I am being sarcastic, okay? I'm not a monarchist. (laughs) Whereas I have been crown-pilled, so I am a monarchist. (laughs) Or at very least, an apologist. Now, um... (laughs) I think that's worse. I think that's worse. <laughs> I think that's a worse thing to no, admit to. No, no, I'm saying I'm an apologist. It's nice to be apologising. It's, it's nice not to even like, you know, I grew up with the monarchy, you know, my grandparents were into it. It's like, yeah, they're bad, but you know what? My heart's open. I forgive them. I apologise <laughs> on behalf of them. My grandma is such a huge queen head. Um, I rang mm. my grandma yesterday and said, how are you feeling? with the news of Queen Liz, and she said, I'm very, very sad, and I'm more sad because I hate Camilla. So there you go. My grandma is on the record. She hates Camilla. I asked her why she hates Camilla, and she said, look at her outfits. She's all hat. So there you go. (laughs) She's all hat. Um, But back in the day, 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. 40 years ago, the Queen was still with us, and... Chuck was just a man about town, floating mm-hmm. around, you know, probably single, I think, at this point. <laughs> yeah. Wrapped up in a little box, probably, back then. <laughs> <laughs> little string dangling behind him. <laughs> and the movies were blockbusters, and that's what we're uh, really yeah. here to talk about. 40 years ago, 1982, the blockbuster summer. We've been talking through some of the biggest flicks from this era. Mm-hmm. We've mainly been sticking with genre fare, I would say. We've been talking yes. science fiction, adventure, a little Spielberg, perhaps. But today, Alexi, we 
are going in a totally different direction. This is this is a film that I have never seen and mm-hmm. I never planned on seeing, but I've always known about. Yeah, it is one of those films that has kind of, I guess for us, especially as like comedy fans and fans of... Uh, the largest and most exciting comedic actors of all time. Mm -hmm. This is known as Mr. Robin Williams' first proper foray into the world of of dramatic acting in like Mm. a big, big drama, big director, George Roy Hill. The movie is The World According to Garp, based on the John Irving novel, which is a bit of a classic in modern American literature. Um, and like you, I had never seen it before, but it had been, I guess, on my radar for those reasons too. Yeah, I think you you know about it because you know it's Robin Williams' first dramatic role. I think it came out maybe six months after Mork and Mindy went off the air or something as well. So it's a huge shift, I guess, in the public eye's opinion of Robin Williams from, hey, he's the alien in the Rainbow Suspenders mm. to, hang on a tick, this guy, serious? Hang on, is this guy actually being freaking serious? The guy who did Popeye but two summers ago Mm. is now having a crack at a naturalistic performance? This is wackadoo shit. Also, Mm. if you are someone like me uh, and you're a film fan, you are aware of John Lithgow in this film. You've always been aware of John Lithgow's performance in this film. Mm -hmm. Possibly you've always been aware of Glenn Close's performance in this film. Um, Her debut film, a debutante on the big screen. Unbelievable. But I'll tell you why this film has always held a place in my mind. Can I ask, can I have a, can I hazard a guess before you reveal? Absolutely. I'll I'll give you the honor of guessing. Is it because it's got a funny title? (laughs) (laughs) No, but that does, that does cause it to stick out on the video shelf. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, uh, and uh, this, there's a reason possibly that I've avoided watching this movie for so long. It is because when I was maybe 12, 12 years old, um, my friend's older brother was telling me about this movie. And oh, he told me that there is a scene in the movie where a guy gets his dick bitten off. Mm-hmm. And that caused such a... <laughs> spark of fear in my own brain that I yep. made a choice at that point that I will never watch this movie because wow. I don't think I could handle it. Because in my head, it oh, was wow. like a horror movie. You see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see it happen. And, and you're like, I couldn't bear to put my precious prick through something like I could, that. I thought that's what the whole movie was going to be about. Because that's all I knew about it. So, yeah. for a long time, I just avoided everything to do with this flick. And I finally you thought this my movie fears. was You thought this movie was The World According to Garp, a guy who bites people's dicks off. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was a dick biter. <laughs> I didn't know what he was. I thought he was running around the country biting off dicks. <laughs> which would be a pretty good movie, to be honest. I think I think we got to make it. Yeah. <laughs> we got to make this movie. <laughs> We'll have to get the biggest comedic actor of our time and we cast them in a horror movie where they run around biting dicks off. So, it's The Rock, wow. obviously. Yep, The Rock, Pete Davidson, expect a call. Yeah, and Kevin Hart. Yeah, sure, you can pop up in it. <laughs> what are we going to do? Not cast Kevin Hart? He's going to be in there too. He'll be and in they're there. all getting their dicks bit off. <laughs> or they're biting dicks off. You never yeah. know. You, uh, that's going to be never the twist. Know. <laughs> You never know who's a biter or who's a bitten in our world. <laughs> so this week, I finally faced my fears and watched this mm. movie for the first time. Uh, Alexi, had you seen this film before? Never seen it before. I remember the cover. I remember seeing that in title going, who's Garp and why do I give a shit about what he thinks about the world? Um, and I have kind of been more interested of late because I feel like it's had a bit of a... Uh, not quite a resurgence, but I think a lot of critics that are now like in their 40s and 50s that came of age in the 1980s, this is one of those movies that holds a special place in their heart. Like, you know, Drew McQueenie is a big fan of this film, Adam Kempenar from Film Spotting, and those critics where this is like a big part of 
their movie going life and their part of their journey into cinephilia. And I think for me, the other thing being that I can understand that was when I was but a teenage boy, a teenage cinephile in the making, there was a John Irving adaptation that meant a lot to me in a similar way in that it was a big emotional movie that made me weep and I connected to like the emotional arc of the film, which was The Cider House Rules. Never seen it. I know about it, uh, but yeah, never seen it. Never will, I reckon. Yeah. I think that is a safe bet. You'll never see the Cider House Rules. It's got a great Michael Caine performance. But that was like a big weepy for me as a teenager. Beautiful score. Lassie Holstrom making an emotional movie. But, you know, as I grew up, that's I rarely think about the Cider House Rules. And heck, I've probably broken a few of them in the most recent times of my life as a bad boy on the scene. But what are I've the never House been... Rules? Like, take, I think take your is. shoes off at the door and stuff like that. <laughs> I actually think one of them is, like, um, if you get pregnant, you must get an abortion. It might be one of them. What is it? What the what fuck is this? I don't even want to know. I don't care. I it's, don't, a I weird, don't it's a very weird movie. It's about orphans and abortions. Okay. Snooze fest. Which is another picture that you and I must pitch together with if our team of the-, the Rock and the Pete Davidson. i got to tell you, if they called the movie Orphans and Abortions, I'd be more likely to watch the thing. <laughs> The Side House Rules sounds like a snooze fest. It's like the Grand Marigold Hotel or some shit. Mm. Salmon it's fishing in the Side House. <laughs> three words put together. They go, I guess that's a title. Yeah, I guess that's a title. Um, well, uh, so this week you finally uh, bit mm. the bullet. Pardon the yes. expression. <laughs> we do call mm, our dicks I- bullets. <laughs> <laughs> bit down on that bullet, snapped it off, and chucked on the world according to Garp. I watched it yesterday, um, and um, holy shit, this is Cameron. This actually might be the single weirdest movie that we've ever covered on this podcast. This is incredibly and- peculiar. Really, really strange. It's not a normal movie, normal. which is weird because I thought this was going to be a real normal. I thought movie. it was going to be norm. It's not norm. Mm. It's not Norm. Heck, it's freaking not even Cliff. It's strange. It's not even uh, Coach. <laughs> it's not even Coach. Rest in peace, brother. <laughs> but I, um, I really, I thought like with a shift away from the genre films, we're gonna have like a calm, easy time, <clears throat> the nice <throat> breezy drama picture. Nope. Um, this is so strange, and it's also the first time in a while when neither of us have seen the movie before. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've been picking favourites of at least one of us uh, that mm. we will share with the other. It's the first time we're both going in blind, mm. and I'm um, I'm a I cannot believe how fucking weird this movie is and how deeply people love it. Yeah, it's um, you know, and even stranger, I think for me is the fact that this was a huge hit. I like I can't even wrap my head around where the culture must have been. In 1982, that when this incredibly wacky film came out, audiences were like, yes, this is actually what we've been wanting for for our entire lives. Thank you so much for giving us exactly what we wanted. This insane Homer's odyssey of, um, like, weirdness. I I was trying to explain it. It's... um, I can't even put my finger tonally on what this movie is. Do you know what I mean? Like, is it, it's sort of a light comedy. It's sort of a drama. It's at times it leans towards the fact that it might be satirical of mm. the of the period that it's set in, but also it's too loving of that period to ever totally be satirical of it. It's really strange um, and totally different to what I was expecting it to be. And I feel like we need to just dive into it and start unpacking it. Let's do it. Let's find out what is up with this world, according to a little guy called Garp, okay? Garp. Garp. Garp? Yes, Garp. Sounds like a fish. Hey, Garp, you want to play? Yes. Not tonight. I have a headache. Every night you have a headache. (laughs) (laughs) My name is T.S. Garp. What's T.S. stand for? Terribly sexy. I used to be terribly shy, but I changed to use a corny line like this, but haven't I seen you before? You like football? Oh, yeah, I used to watch it quite a bit. Well, you might have seen me. I was a tight end with the Philadelphia Eagles. We are civilized people, and civilized people obey rules. 
You have one hell of a way of making converts to civilization. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64. What does the TS stand for? Terribly sad. Used to be terribly sexy, but I, but it changed. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> World According to Garp is a film that we have just watched, but for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Alexi has found a synopsis or a logline about this film somewhere on the deep dark web. He's going to read it out to us. We're going to decide if we love it or hate it. Either way, gun to our head, we must rate it. And this comes from IMDB user Huggo, and I found one that is pretty in-depth because this movie's so weird. I want those that have not seen Mm. this movie or even heard one instance of what it's about to get a pretty wacky understanding of what is going on Mm. in the world, according to Garp. Here we go. T.S. Garp has led an unusual life. Born in 1944 and named after his father, he is the bastard son of an opinionated feminist nurse, Jenny Fields, who wanted a child but not a husband. She got herself pregnant by a hospitalized soldier on his deathbed. He, known only to her as Technical Sergeant Garp. As a young adult, Garp, shaped by his upbringing, especially his mother's influence, is an aspiring writer and freestyle wrestler. He shows great aptitude in both. His writing inspires his mother to try her hand at it as well her subject being her greatest curiosity in life which is human sexuality most specifically male lust and its effect on women into garp's life comes a myriad of jenny's friends acquaintances groupies and advisors which includes a trans ex-football player named roberta muldoon a reformed prostitute and a group of women who practice self-mutilation all in the name of making a statement also into his life comes Helen Holm the daughter of his wrestling coach Garp and Helen have a stormy but passionate relationship the passion based in part on their joint love of literature through all these unusual experiences Garp just wants to find his place in the world which has a different sensibility than him Mm. thank you for reading that entire thing because when you hear it all laid out in um you know like a two minute chunk it really hammers home just how fucking insane this movie is and i reckon huge props to huggo because it is the only succinct yet long synopsis to describe so many of the disparate elements in there while still cutting out some chaff and leaving stuff off that might even be important to the movie I have to say, hearing it all laid out again has perhaps even uh, made me reevaluate a little bit, like the, or at least appreciate the peculiar genius of John Irving's writing here. I, I kind of like the fact that it's <clears throat> it's unashamedly wacky, and that there's so many different tiny little strange vignettes within the movie that could be their own thing, but they're just given a minute or two of screen time and they all add up to, I don't know if they add up to like a grand statement, but they definitely, they definitely make the world feel unique, the world of the movie. And that's maybe a problem that I have with the thing is that I don't know what the grand statement of it all is. It feels epic. It feels like Homer's Odyssey in many ways, Mm. And it sort of is born out of a tradition of American literature. I don't know if there's an official name for the movement, but there's, you know, several books that are in this sort of vein. You know, I would say Forrest Gump is Mm, comparable. Um, Confederacy of Dunces is one. Ken Casey's books like um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Sometimes a Great Notion. It's sort of like whimsical Americana. Mm. I think it's sort of inspired by Mark Twain, where it's almost like applying metaphor and myth to the everyday American's life. And it's usually a story about one seemingly insignificant person, usually a man, 
up against their own times, up against mm. the 50s or the 60s yeah. or something. And it's kind of how they are reacting to the world changing around them and how they are influencing the times changing themselves. And I think often with these films, you can look at them and go, wow, there's a lot of fun shit in them, these films and books. A lot of fun shit, a lot of fun moments. But when I step back and try to look at it from a whole, I can't tell you what it's about. Like, I, I, I don't know what Forrest Gump is about other than it's about some freaky dude who's, like, <laughs> living through a cool time. <laughs> yeah. It's that thing. It, it, it's such an American uh, style of storytelling of being the individual in contrast to the culture around them, Mm. in contrast to what America is at that time. And I think, you know, when we look at films, there are so many examples of that. Like, Ron Howard's entire oeuvre is that. Mm. Robert Zemeckis does it a lot. Forrest Mm. Gump, of course, being, like, the great example of it. Um, And there's so many different versions of that. And I think this was... I didn't even anticipate this to be a film like that. I think I knew so little about it that I didn't know it was going to be one of those grand American epics of whimsy. Yeah. And I think what... I come down to with this movie is I was never bored. Like this is a very entertaining movie because totally. it's so odd mm. and there's so many disparate things that happen and it is kind of an interpretation of the unexpected nature of life. Like it's very hard to predict what is going to happen in this movie because it takes it takes like the journey of real life where you can't really plan things and there are narratives that appear in your own life that take some shape where you know there's something that you find interesting when you're younger that then mm. pays off in the future like i keep thinking about the storyline that really resonated with me the most is that uh garp's mother is a very strong feminist and she her whole life is dedicated to women and to uh, it, it, to the women's movement and to women as individuals and as a group. And when he becomes a writer, he finds success inspired by this group of women that his mother is close to that uh, cut out their tongues due to the rape and abuse of this young woman. And it is like their protest statement. And Garp finds that like incomparable that they do that. Like he can't believe that people self-mutilate in the name of someone, especially when the person that this movement is based around is not, uh, doesn't like that, does not uphold those Mm. ideals that they're doing. And then they continue to do it against her wishes. And he finds success writing a book on that. That was the one through line that I really found the most fascinating because it felt like the most uh the most it felt like the most interesting depiction in the film of one person in their realm of history and how it relates to what has come before them with his mother how that changes and how he sees it and it was a one time i was like oh yeah that is the world according to garp he is writing the book about Mm. history from his perspective but then i think what holds me back and it holds me back on almost all the other examples that we listed at least cinematically that these films feel so american that i can't imagine really deeply loving them if you're not american and i'm not american so i just go yeah well i guess that's what it's like over there sometimes it just don't i don't really feel the way into these movies um Mm. because i don't have that perspective i don't have that sense of uh nostalgia for those times or uh even the feeling of what it is like to be a person in america against the culture in yeah when you're feeling when you're feeling the culture change and you're aware Mm. of it and we have we've experienced that a bit lately i think um you know like globally we've all kind of almost been on the same page for the last three or four years so it it is an interesting feeling when you when you are aware that you are in the pages of history as they're being Mm. written very strange and i think that's what a lot of these movies are about like they are this they're you these movies and some of these books are usually post-war or they're mm. post-Vietnam or something. I um, 
And so the characters are sort of aware of the fact that they are in a time of flux. And I do find Mm. that really interesting. But I think you're right. It's like they're also semi like American historical memoirs and we Mm. just don't live there. So we don't, we can't 100% buy in. And maybe I know we're not talking about Forrest Gump, but I'll use that as an example. Like Mm. I quite like Forrest Gump. A lot of people shit on it. Yeah, I despise it. Yeah, I know you do, and I don't. I don't see how that's possible. It's not to me. It's not even anything. Like it's just like mm. a, a bowl of ice cream or something. It's not like how can you hate it? It's not. It has no substance. It has mm. no like protein. It's just like a sweet little treat that you can just pop on and eat, and it doesn't matter. I don't see how it's despisable. I actually find it quite charming in many ways, mm. but I would never be able to sit back and tell you that it's good, and I would also mm. never be able to tell you what it's saying um, mm. other than isn't this cool. I'm completely immune to its charms. I completely... It does absolutely zero for me. Uh, even Tom Hanks, I hate him in that performance. And I love Zemeckis. I like most of his movies. Even the ones people hate, I like them. You like but Marwin. This is just one. You're a big Marwin guy. I've yet to see what Marwin <laughs> call or whatever it's called. Welcome to Marwin. I've yet to see it, but um, I know I'm going to love it. Oh, God. <laughs> but this but like this movie, I think, is, is at least attempting to say something mm. about its times. I'm try- I, know, I still haven't quite landed on what it is, but there are moments that I can see that it has a perspective on what's going on. Mm. And you know what? I, I actually don't even agree with the perspective that John Irving has, Like, but, but I'm, mm. I can at least see it and I appreciate it. And I think that in many ways, this movie or this book seems to be a, a satire of extreme masculinity and extreme femininity we've Mm. got a a bizarre chunk of this movie is about (laughs) amateur wrestling (laughs) which is something i didn't didn't expect you know like garp is obsessed with wrestling when he's a kid he wants to be a wrestler and a fighter pilot and his mum won't let him do either of those things he ends up becoming a wrestler in high school and he's really good at it and wrestling kind of leads to him becoming the man that he is and then ultimately leads to his downfall. On the other side of the scale, you've got his mother who's portrayed as sexless or at very least like totally uninterested in sex, can't understand from it. From a personal perspective, from like curious a- about what it is in a yeah, like cultural biolo- context. Biologically, she is asexual, I would say. Mm. She doesn't understand it. She's confused by it, but she's intrigued by it enough to want to write about it. Um, she becomes kind of unwittingly a feminist icon, and she gets involved in a group of women that self-mutilate in the name of feminism. And... She ultimately meets her downfall through supporting a female governor or senator or something like that. Mm. So I don't, I'm not quite there on what this is saying, but I do find it interesting that both extreme masculinity and extreme femininity lead to downfall and like destruction on both sides. Mm. And I feel like that's something that John Irving is trying to say about the times. And I don't know what the fuck he's trying to say, but that's what he's trying to lead us towards. I think maybe you've unlocked a little bit further for me as well in that maybe why I don't connect to this or even Gump is like, they're so American because they're such centrist movies. They don't really have a point of view in the argument. They're all kind of a message of empathy in trying to see both sides of the argument or mm. trying to see uh to trying to understand someone else's life so i think there is like this message of empathy in this film or at least uh, a, a, a mission for for empathy in this film um but it is 
also so odd because I think films that effectively create those empathies are more specific than this one. And because this is kind of like a grand scale story uh, with a large backdrop and the oddities that it kind of comes across. Like this is like (laughs) not just an odyssey, it's the odyssey of the oddities Mm. where it's all, everything is so strange uh, in otherwise a rather picturesque kind of suburban suburban aesthetic of America, Mm. which is, I think, one of the things I find interesting about it. There is that kind of very... Uh, the Americana-ness, like the Norman Rockwell of it all, where it's like these beautiful suburban white picket fences or at least like beautiful houses looking out onto the ocean that uh, like such an idealized depiction of that college lifestyle in that kind of American semi-intellectual way as well with Garp going to college and wanting to become an author, work in literature. Yeah. It is so interesting how strange it all is and how much it is about like the sexual politics in a way that I don't know if it really examines things too interestingly, but it's interesting to see sexuality be so frank in a movie like this. It's it's the key um, interest of the film is sexual Mm. politics and men versus women and people getting what they want from each other, you know. I mean, there's an early childhood sequence has, like, Garp and his neighbour experimenting sexually when they're children, and then when they're teenagers, they meet up again and they have sex for the first time with each other. And, like, sex and the what men and women want from it is explored throughout this movie. No statement is ever given either way. Mm but it is explored and I do find it incredibly interesting that a lot of the characters on either side of that spectrum are villainous or evil mm. or at the very least like duplicitous. Um, the only character who's portrayed as sort of like a beacon for good or a beacon mm. for neutrality is John Lithgow's character, Roberta Muldoon, trans mm. character. And I, I don't, again, I don't know what... John Irving is saying here, but that feels important to me that the only character who is portrayed as like unequivocally good mm. is a trans woman. And I don't. And also a total vessel for empathy. Total vessel for empathy, yeah. Where you feel everything for them, but because they're so open hearted, you help. Under- they help you understand the other characters and their perspectives in the film as well amazing beautiful sensational performance yeah great performance it, you know watching this movie i every time john lithgow was on screen i kept thinking i just sort of wish i was watching the roberta muldoon movie like mm. that would be a more interesting movie to me just to watch this woman navigate her way through life um mm. in this in this time and the people that she's up against is like it would be a it would be a really interesting story um, but my God, what a performance, huh? I just absolutely adore John Lithgow. I How think fucking good really, is he? He's one of the greats, I think. Like, one of the all-time greats because of what they are able to achieve in so many disparate forms, but never really feeling inauthentic ever. I think Always that is authentic. what I carry most. Always authentic, even odd character roles like in All That Jazz where he plays like the rival choreographer, director, or um, in Raising Kane where he plays a serial Mm. killer, or even Dexter where he plays a serial killer, or Cliffhanger where he plays a villain, (laughs) or, Or, you know... uh, What is it? Blow Up where he plays a serial killer. No, not Blow Up. He plays a serial killer. What's the one? Blow Out. Blow Out, yeah, Yeah. he plays a serial killer in that too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but even, like, if you contrast those with kind of maybe where we more think about Lithgow in stuff like This Is 40, where he plays uh, Leslie Mann's father, and mm. I think you see him as, like, those fatherly roles, or even um, Daddy's Home 2, where he plays Will Ferrell's father. Dude, think about... He, he ran... He was the lead on a sitcom in the 90s, and the 2000s, Third Rock from the Sun. And it's a fucking powerhouse performance of a comedy sitcom performance. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like you said, you've got him playing 
fatherly roles in these studio comedies. And then he was either nominated for or won for major awards for playing Churchill in the first season of The Crown. And he's like transformative in that. The guy can do it all. He can He's be Lord funny. Farquhard, he for he goodness sake. He can be scary. He can be mm-hmm. dramatic. He can be serious. He can ride the... And, and in this movie, he's kind of maybe the most empathetic and open-hearted that I've ever seen him be. It's really... Mm. I mean, the guy's fucking sick. i got to put yeah. it out there. John Lithgow's fucking sick. He's sick in the head with the way that he can manipulate people on the screen like this. If I ever got he, to interview him, I'd be like, dude, you're so sick. And he'd be like, yeah. oh, thank you. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to make the diagnosis, Johnny boy. You're sick. You're sick. <laughs> yeah, I just adore this character. I adore this character. And I also think... Glenn Close in her film debut. Mm. What a rip roaring way to I can't enter believe this is history. her first movie. It's crazy. What man. a mature performance. She has to play Robin Williams' father. They're basically the same our uh, father, his mother. They're basically the same age. They're like four years and- apart or something. It's crazy because she you so believe it. I think it's because you start with her having the young garp tossing him in the air. And because she establishes, like, that strength so early on and that kind of authoritative mother style that is still full of, like, caring and love in a way that doesn't feel like... In a way I don't think I've ever seen before either. I think her being so early on, you just believe it for the rest of their lives that she's his mother and older than him and you never, ever question it at all. Just... Unbelievable. I think she's so freaking fantastic in this. um, Her and Lithgow, both nominated for Best Supporting uh, Actor. Really, really great stuff. Glenn Close is one of those actors who, you know, when I was a kid, I guess I only really knew her from 101 Dalmatians and that tiny little cameo that she's in in Hook. You know that tiny little part? And no, like, not the boo box. Yeah, the boo box. Not the boo box. <laughs> and like, not the boo box. I don't even know what else I would have known her from. But to me, I, I, you know, I never really thought of her too much. It was always like, oh, yeah, Glenn Close. Yeah, Cruella DeVille. She's just one mm-hmm. of those actors who's around. And then in the last couple of years, I've seen, I've seen her in this, obviously. I've seen her in Fatal Attraction. Mm, and something oh, the, big chill, the big chill the big chill as well and i was just kind of it's just dawned on me in the last couple of years that that she should be spoken about in, with the reverence that people talk about meryl streep mm. i really think she's fucking um, she's like lithgow she's sick mm. dude she's fucking yeah. awesome and she again can do it all she can do like high camp mm. Funny, villainous, incredibly restrained, naturalistic, musicals. She's really fucking good. Mm, yeah, she's wicked, man. Oh, shall we talk about the main man, Mr. Robin Williams? Monsieur Garp. Yeah, Garp himself, T.S., totally sexy Garp. Mm. Um, I... It is a really beautiful performance. He's one of the greats, like we've just said about these two other performers. Uh, But what do we see about him making that transition from America's Funny Man, Popeye, Mm. Mork, to a turn towards the dramatic in this? I think what they understand, or what George Roy Hill, the director, who also directed like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Sting, other great American classics, I think what he really understands so early on that had yet to be truly utilized yet was the unbridled warmth of Robin Williams. The mm. unbridled warmth mm. of Robin Williams. Yeah, 100% agree. There's, um, there's something George Roy Hill does in uh, all the films of his that I've seen that I think is incredibly important when you are directing essentially a drama and that is to have the main characters in your drama be funny people yeah i think that's so important and often disregarded when people are writing a sort of epic or a dramatic film is that their characters are serious all the time but I mean, if you've seen Butch Cassidy and The Sting and stuff like these, these are dudes that are living in a serious 
seen, but they are being kind of funny or at least charming, mildly goofball-esque in the middle of it all. And I think it, it adds weight to the drama of these sorts of movies. And I think this is a great example of it. It's also really strange to see how fully formed Robin was as a dramatic actor, like right out of the gate, mm. you know, like we've seen him do it a lot later in his career, especially the 90s when he, you know, I think Goodwill Hunting was the big one, I guess, from that era. And then in the 2000s, he started turning towards more sinister roles in mm. Insomnia and One Hour Photo and stuff. But this is the first one and it's... um. It's all there. Like the guy, everyone already knows this about him, but he's a he's a classically trained actor who just also mm. happened to be one of the most the batshit funniest, insane, funniest, <laughs> funniest <laughs> improvisers of all time. Mm. And it's like it, it is crazy to watch it and go, oh yeah, God, he was just always a, a classical actor. He probably was applying mm. that to his stand up and to his sitcom work as well. Because he's known as, like, one of the Juilliard guys, right? That's yeah. where he's from. Him, Christopher Him Reeve. Him and Kevin, Kevin Christopher Klein. Reeve, Kevin Klein, mm. the three Juilliard boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like, a, a lot of people have come out of there since then, but maybe they helped, like, uh, give the school its reputation at that time mm. from becoming big stars out of it. Um, man, he's, he's really wonderful. You're right. It's the warmth that he has, those twinkly eyes. It's the mm. control over his voice. And also the the way that his smile escapes him, I think, is really powerful. Like, the, there's that glint of a smile that just beams through a character. And then when it disappears, uh, I think that holds a lot of power as well. Mm. Yeah, he might be one of those... Like, obviously, there are people that came before him that did this. Like, Buster Keaton's the example of mm. the uh, funny man with the sad face. But Robin Williams, maybe more than anyone, understood the power of watching someone that we're used to seeing be, like, the smiling, funny, happy guy just mm. do a sad face every now and then. And it's fucking... It breaks my heart every time. Watching Robin Williams be sad? Come on, dude. Yeah. Especially now that we know how sad he actually was. It's crazy. Yeah. He, it is... It's it's pretty remarkable, especially just the way they're able to capture it, the way George Roy Hill knows how to understand and control it and help channel it and help really reintroduce Robin Williams to people with this film in a really different way. I think he is, he is a marvellous actor and there are a lot of films of his that mean a lot to me, but I think that it's interesting because he has a few really great classics, but I think those really stick out and his filmography has some real bad stuff in it, like real stinkers. And even some of the ones I love are like notorious stinkers like Mrs. Doubtfire and Hawk that are like definitely people recognize them as not good movies but you know i still love them but i think i mean what are your favorite robin williams films and the ones that you think are the best as well i uh you know what i'm gonna have to disagree with you i really do think that even those two films that you just mentioned like who gives a fuck what people if people think they're bad movies they're all-time classics we still know them we still talk about mrs doubtfire and hook to this day people might Say, oh, critically, it's not very good. It's a fucking classic. Almost everything mm. on his filmography is. There are some shitty ones. What about RV? RV? Uh, yeah, I've never seen it. Like, obviously, there's some that it's I'll never classic. see. But there's a lot that <laughs> yeah. are, like, works of art and, like, works of comedy genius. Even, like, the ones that I don't really care about. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, Patch Adams. I will never watch that again. But I'm never mm. going to think negatively of it because there's just so many... You know, there's enough good stuff in even his crappiest films, <laughs> you know. And obviously later on in his career, there's a lot more shit than there was. But the 90s, that's a great mm. era for him. It's such an interesting era because it's like it, it has so many different layers in the 90s where there are the big ones that are iconic, like The Birdcage. I think he's so fantastic in that. 
obviously Aladdin, signature movie, mm. one of the best. I think that movie's fantastic. And then there's so many like little odd ones in between Jumanji's and stuff. You've got your Jacks. Mm-hmm. You've got him popping up in Hamlet. You've got him in Deconstructing Harry. Then you've got Flubber, Goodwill Hunting. And the one that I've always been interested in going back to is Bicentennial Man. Because mm. I remember seeing it as a kid and just being like, what is this freaking movie? What is this? Man, it's up. It's the world according to Bicentennial Man. I think you're right. Like, Bicentennial <laughs> Man is a science fiction iteration of this exact kind of American film that we're talking about. Mm. A man against his era. And his era lasts for freaking two, <laughs> two centuries. Is the Bicentennial Man. Yeah, he's the Bicentennial Man. Um, yeah, it's insane. Like, he's, you can't ever really shit on the guy's filmography when he has those films that you mentioned in them. Like, Mm. I mean, Aladdin is, like, maybe one of the greatest vocal performances of all time. A lot of people, a lot of people make fun of it, but I still have a soft spot for Dead Poet Society, Good Morning Vietnam as well. Oh, Good Morning Vietnam, I don't like. That's one I don't like. Uh, there's a lot. I really, I love Mrs. Doubtfire. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff mm. in here. What, what what dreams may come was one that I think that is insane. That is insane. But it like I have such a huge soft spot for it because I love that whole like heaven shit. I love mm. all that afterlife shit. I think it's interesting because often when I think about him, I go, oh, yeah, his filmography sucks. But when I'm looking over it again, there's a lot of movies that I love. Even odd ones like Awakenings, I just adore. Mm, love and Awakenings. Fisher King probably mm-hmm. Fisher King, is dude. my favorite. So Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah, Fisher and King's great. It is, it is weird. It's weird because you don't have that many people that are as prolific as him to have- so many stinkers and so many movies that are great and so many, like, movies that should be stinkers that people have such a deep emotional connection to. And why is it? It's because of him. Like, he is completely undeniable. Like, he is one of the rare people that I think people are so deeply connected to, especially of our generation, where he is just... He's a given in our in our childhood. I think it's the yeah, obviously the ubiquitousness of him in our childhood, but also I believe that on some subconscious level, when we're watching Robin Williams on screen, we can sense that his crazy is not put on. We can sense mm. that this is a, a, an incredibly authentic human being, no matter how hammy or big he's being. It's coming from a real place. So this is a guy who is a bit crazy and a bit sad. Mm. And as kids and teenagers, we feel crazy and sad all the time and we fucking connect to it. We're like, that's kind of, I relate to this insanity, you know. Mm. Like, I, I have a huge love for Robin Williams, so much so that I would, I forgive him of all of his joke-stealing trespasses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It is true, right? <laughs> like that's how that's so rare that we can know mm. for a fact that Robin Williams stole stole jokes and entire stand-up mm-hmm. routines from other comedians and we're still like, "Oh yeah, but that guy's a war criminal." He's good on him. He did all right. Yeah. He did good with the stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I you know, he's just a he's a fascinating comedic force and uh I I I really miss him. Wow. I really That's do. That's choked up. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean at least we'll always have his works. We'll always have Flubber, we'll always have Garp. Yeah, we'll always have old dogs. <laughs> and we'll always have um, Night at the Museum 3 yeah. Battle of the Smithsonian. We'll always have Merry Friggin' Christmas. Okay, what's that one? <laughs> I've never heard of that one before. Oh, you never heard of Merry Friggin' Christmas starring Joel McHale, Lauren Graham, Clark Duke, Oliver Platt, Tim Heidecker, <laughs> Candice Bergen, and Robin Williams? <laughs> oh my god, that is the funniest movie to make up. If you've just gone, yeah, I've pulled this cast out of your ass, it's genius work. That's a real cast. That's a real cast. Oh, but it, my it God. sounds like a cast that we would make up. 
Oh, I'm just looking at his filmography now. I'm going to blow your mind. Death to Smoochie comes out mm. 2002. Yeah, isn't that insane? That feels like early 90s to me. What the hell? I cannot believe that's a turn of the millennium movie. He had a crazy 2002. He pretty much only played villains. One yep. hour photo, Death to Smoochie and Insomnia all came out within the year. And he plays baddies in all of them. And I always think about one hour photo. I rewatched it last year. Um, he plays a guy called... S- his surname is Parrish, just like in Jumanji. <laughs> Alan Parrish. That's so weird. He plays Seymour Parrish. Wow. Do you think they're cousins? I reckon they're related for sure. Yeah. Mm. They were separated at birth orphans. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do really love Robin Williams. And uh, even mm. though I think this film is crazy and I don't think I'll ever watch it again, I'm glad I did watch it. You know, I'm I'm glad that I've now seen it. Um, I really appreciated it. I think there's a lot of really nice, poetic, beautiful shit in it. I think there's some mm. really funny stuff too. And the dick biting scene wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. It's played more for... I don't even know. Can we step bot through it a little bit? Because it's one of the other scenes. So uh, his wife, Helen, uh, Mary Beth Hurt, who I just found out is Mrs. Paul Schrader. Whoa. Yeah. Crazy. So, she also great performance. Yeah. Uh, his wife is a professor, a lecturer at the university. She begins having an affair for young hunk. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that affair, the news of it breaks out. Garp is upset by it. He takes mm-hmm. their two young kids to go see a movie in an flurry of anger she tries to break up with the stud and they're like okay yes one last time for it's really interesting the way sexuality plays its role in this scene truly because it's over it's over but then it's just like a goodbye session uh kind of thing right like how would you read that scene i didn't like it um to me it's borderline sus it's borderline, like, not cool because, yeah, they've just broken up. But then he starts sort of pressuring her, come on, one more time, one more time. And she's like, they're both crying. And mm. uh, and then she's like, fine, if it'll make you go away, like, one last time. So, to me, it, I didn't enjoy it. I thought it was like, mm. eh, this is reads as a bit fucking grimy and grubby to me. But also, well, maybe let the record that's the show. Point. I don't enjoy it either. <laughs> from what we're about to describe, what happens from here on out, so, but, but, I don't enjoy this but then scene I st- either. But then I started thinking, like, all right, are they making us not like this guy? You know, are they mm. like trying to manipulate me into not liking this guy so that I am then applauding what happens next, mm. which is that she starts going down on him. Um, you don't see it. You don't see it. You just know that's what's happening. From how sex usually goes down, you infer that information. And then uh, Garp and the kids are driving home in a angry way. Very, they're speeding, and he pulls into his driveway and slams into the back of the stud's car, which is where the sex session is happening. And then it freeze frames on a still of Garp's kids in the back seat. And you hear the crash of the two cars. And then the next time, like it cuts to presumably a few weeks later or mm. a month later or something. And the kids are both injured, which is no, really cool. One's, one's dead. One's dead. One kid died. Yeah. Another kid lost his eye. Mm-hmm. Garp is in a neck brace and he's bitten his tongue and is, has stitches in his tongue. In a, I guess so an, ir- talk. an ironic callback to the women cutting their tongues out from earlier. Mm-hmm. His wife is in a neck brace as well. And Presumably, she swallowed a guy's member. And we hear <laughs> we hear that the uh, man is dead as well. Like the guy, I guess, bled out or something like that. Oh, I thought that he lived without a pecker. I think he died. But anyway, uh-huh. it's like it's sort of um like. If someone were to pitch that scene, oh, yeah, there should be a blowjob scene and then they crash a car and the dick gets bitten off. To me, that almost reads as a comedy scene, but it's sort of played mm. like a harrowing event in everybody's yeah. life. 
Like it's really played horrifically. A kid dies. And it's a freeze frame of the kid. Yeah. Where, like, you know, a freeze frame of the kid in his last moments of life. Like the fucking ending of Gallipoli, dude. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And then the other kid loses an eye or something. It's just like, it was really, that the whole bit was a bit upsetting to me. Although mm. I was moved by the reunion of um, Garth yeah, and Helen. Because yeah, it was sort wild. of funny and sweet at the same time. And I, I was moved by it. But yeah, anyway, so the dick sucking wasn't that um, scary, but it was fucked up in a totally different way than I thought it was going to be. And it was hot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was hot. Shall we give away a couple of Oscars? Yes, yes, of course. We got to give some Oscars away. And I think that this, we got to give away two character actor Oscars, I think, because this is a movie full of like rich performances and wonderful actors. But there are two in here that both of us just love. I would love to give away a best character actor Oscar to a character actor I've loved my whole life, Swoozy Kurtz. Uh, you would know her from Bubble Boy. She plays the Bubble Boy's mum, Liar Liar, The Rules of Attraction, Cruel Intentions, where she plays Dr. Greenbaum. But also a show that you and I have talked about a lot over the years, the show Pushing Daisies, where she plays one of the aunts on that Sonnenfeldian creation, Pushing <laughs> Daisies. But I just love her. I think that she's such a joy every time I see her. And I do think Bubble Boy is like the more overt comedic take on these types of American literature adaptations of a man against his time in this weird world. I want to do a double bill of Garp and Bubble Boy. That's crazy. <laughs> but you're right. That's so true. It's definitely within the... It's it's very similar. It's in that sort of uh, Homer's Odyssey ballpark. I'd say the mm. more serious version of that type of movie is Boyhood, the Richard Linklater yeah. film. Um, yeah, true. So maybe we could do a triple bill. We start with Bubble Boy. Yeah. Then we start veering into drama with Garp, and then we end with... Mm-hmm. Um, boyhood and we sell zero yeah. tickets because nobody wants to come to this triple bill <laughs> yeah it's just us watching a movies <laughs> for nine hours yeah <laughs> yeah I love Swoozy Kurtz she's always a great screen presence and I love mm. her name so much me too Swoozy I believe it's short for Swoozen let me look up if it is short for Swoozen it's uh it's not her name is Swoozy is oh wow insane? what Oh, hang on. You could just do... What the fuck? You could just call people Garp and Swoozin once upon a time. Yeah, Swoozin. Great, the Swooz. Oh, apparently yes. it was... Um. Yeah, it's actually a really stupid name. Sorry to say it. Sorry to say it, but it's a really stupid name. It's like it comes from half swan, half goose. Okay, yeah, that I like. <laughs> that I really like. That is truly insane. That's more insane than the world, according to Garp. Um, another yeah. character actor award I'd like to give out is a very small role in this film, but there's something about her. She she can project emotion, like intense, mm. raw emotion, in, oh, in yeah. such a unique way. Uh, and that is Amanda Plummer, who plays Ellen James, the uh, the woman who inspired the Jamesian self-harming cult. She's in this movie for about 60 seconds. She doesn't say anything because her character is um, unable to speak, but she is so emotional in that 60-second mm. sequence. It's, it's actually quite overwhelming, that whole scene. Yeah. I really loved it. Those of you who are familiar with Amanda Plummer, you probably best know her from Pulp Fiction where she plays Honey Bunny or whatever her character's name is mm-hmm. in that. Um, is it Honey Bunny? Is that who she is? Or is it the other one? I think so. Yeah, Yolanda, no. Honey Bunny, yeah. 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 Uh, she's also she's in So, so I Married an Axe I'm Murderer. Married an Axe Murderer yes, yes. as I won't say which character, but they may be titular. Yes. God, I love that movie. 
Me too, me too, me too, me too. Me too. I fucking really like that movie. I don't know if we've ever mm. talked about it. Uh, yeah, we have a few times. Have we? Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, so we actually used to do this podcast camera called Mike Check, where we went through all the films of Mike Myers just to check if they're still shagadelic, and that one is considered to be one of the more shagadelic movies. Awesome. I might watch it today. <laughs> 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 yeah, I love Amanda Plummer. Um, all right, look, we got to reboot this flick. The world according to mm-hmm. Gump. How are we going to do that? We got the rights. <sighs> Gosh, how do we do this now? I guess it's like, do they still make these kind of movies now? Hmm. Surely they do. I guess so. You know what? It feels like it would be uh, a, a limited series or something these mm. days. It's definitely a Ron Howard joint. Like, he's the guy that still makes this shit now. Like, I think Hillbilly Elegy is a more dramatic version of this kind of story. He always makes these kind of freaking things like a guy in American history stories. Um, that also has Glenn Close. Mm. Yeah. What if it... Or is there a sequel? The World According to One of Garp's Kids. Wow. Or something like that. I'd watch that. I'd also I'd watch the world according to Roberta Muldoon. Mm. That would be kind of it fun. It would be kind of fascinating to see that character now, especially mm. like John Lithgow. You know, what would they be able to do with that character now? Because yeah. um, especially it feels so fresh still for a trans character in history. Obviously, it would be not played by um, a, a male identifying actor mm. now, but. Uh, I think for a film from 1982, it's such a sensitive portrayal. It'd be interesting to see what they, how you would even adapt Garp now. Totally. Oh, you know what else could be a cool idea? A prequel, still called The World According to Garp, but it's about the original technical sergeant Garp. Holy shit. I think you sold something in the room just then. <laughs> I, think, I think you just sold something in the room because people were like, oh, well, what's life like for the guy that we never met that was mm. in his final moments on this earth raped by Garth's mother and brought her son into the world? That's, what was by the way, life? that is something we haven't brought up yet, which is that mm. <laughs> Garth is born out of what I guess can only amount to non-consensual sex between his mother Mm -hmm. and a dying soldier. So, very interesting, very interesting stuff in this movie. And I actually think it's one of the most crazy things in the movie, the (laughs) thing that I was most surprised by, that the film calls it out. I did not... Like, the whole time I'm going in my head go... Well, I guess this is pretty weird, but it's a almost fantasy movie from 1982 yeah. based on a book. No one will have any opinions on it. I'm like, I guess that I just have to kind of move past this idea and I go, maybe I hold it in my head that this is a complex character that has done some many bad things from a selfish perspective. But then a guy calls her out and I'm like, oh, wow, movie, you impressed me. Yeah, impressed me as well. Yeah, a couple of people call it out throughout the film. Mm. It's really interesting. God, it's a fucking weird, weird movie. <laughs> what a weird... This is truly the most bonkers movie. One of the strangest films I've ever seen. And we're in this series, it's- we've watched movies about aliens becoming friends with suburban boys. And this is weird. Mm. And we saw Conan have sex with a prophetic witch. Yeah. And this is the weirdest one. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think I'll ever get grips with it. I wonder if I'll see it again because I did buy it on iTunes because it was only $2 more to own it than to rent it. And I just said, well, who knows? Maybe one day I'll watch it again, get my money's worth. And I don't know if I ever will. It's a strange film. You should have just rented it. That's insane. I know. I could have bought one coffee. <laughs> <laughs> now I went a day Why did you buy it? It's not even like it. you bought physical media. You just like bought the... The fucking file on iTunes. It just felt so expensive <laughs> to rent at $5, but to own for 7 I was like, that feels less of a sting to me. You are a me. sucker. That's like a I snake know. oil merchant move. <laughs> I got so suckered because usually when you're renting on iTunes, it's like $3 to rent, 14 to buy. That's the mm. easiest decision in the world. Mm. This so close to the line. Even if one year in eight years' time, I want to watch Garp again or- See the scene where a guy gets his peck a bit off or something. Mm. I'll have it. I've only ever bought two movies from iTunes in my whole experience. They are what are they? Hot Rod 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the original point break because that wasn't streaming on anything for a while. Yeah. And I just wow. was like, well, I just want to have these on hand just in case mm. I need to view them. And I've watched them both, uh, particularly Hot Rod, a lot. Yeah. I know there's one that I have that is no longer available on iTunes, but I still have it. And that is Pete's Meteor, an otherwise impossible Mike Myers film to oh, watch. God. Awful. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's Garpos. We learned about his life, the world according to him, yeah. and the wonderful Mr. Robin Williams, one of the great talents in film history. I'm glad we watched it, but it truly mm, me too. It, it cannot be understated how truly whack this movie is. Really fucking wackadoo stuff. Cameron, next week, what are we doing on the podcast? Next week, we're going to tackle one of the most important documentaries of the last 40 years. Mm. It's uh, it's an Australian documentary created by a wonderful filmmaker called George Miller. Dr. George. Dr. George Miller. And it is called Mad Max 2. Mm, an exciting picture, mm. an exciting Australian film released in America, taking over the freaking world in 1982. Uh, I look forward to it. I love that movie a lot. I've only seen it once, but I really enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to diving mm. back in. And until then, Cameron, you got anything you want to plug? Yeah, why not? Let's go psycho. Guys, if you want to see me do some stand-up comedy in Sydney, I'm going to be doing a bunch of... New material through the Sydney Fringe Festival from September 28th through to October 2, every single night at the Sydney Fringe. I'll put a link in the show notes. Also, I'm touring Electric Dreams again later in the year. I've got a bunch of dates lined up, but only two that I can announce at the moment, and they are both in Tasmania. November 17 in Hobart and November 18 in Launceston, with more dates to come in Adelaide, in Sydney, uh, and in Brisbane, and I think in Melbourne again. Um, Beautiful. And I guess I would really like to plug Finding Yeezus as well. Mm-hmm. It comes out September 26th very soon. Trailer comes out a little bit before that, so make sure you are subscribed to the Grouse House YouTube page. Hit the bell so you get the notifications when episodes come out. And I'll also say that in this feed, we're going to put out after shows, so make sure you subscribe to Total Reboot during that time. Uh, we'll be having, we'll be going in depth behind the scenes about like how we made the stuff, mm. why we chose to show things that we show, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's been pretty fun talking through them, maybe recording them a little bit early and there'll be a nice surprise uh, with who will be joining us for those that we will not say yet but if you are fans of what we do you'll be very delighted to see who will be in the podcast realm with us on those I have a small plug uh, I have a one-scene cameo in the new reboot of Heartbreak High, uh, so watch that on Netflix. And I won't tell you where, so you have to watch the whole thing, and I'll pop up with a couple of lines, playing basically myself. I think I'm canonically in the Heartbreak High universe because I'm doing what I do in real life, so I feel like it is just me. <laughs> <laughs> That's good fun. If you have any questions for our uh, Finding Yeezus stuff throughout, you know, we can answer Mm -hmm. those questions. If you can tweet at us or DM us on Instagram, I'm at I am Cameron James. Alexi is this is Alexi. Send us your questions about the series and we will try to answer all of them on our after show podcast. Beautiful. Have a beautiful day, a beautiful tomorrow, and heck, even a beautiful yesterday in the year 1982, 40 years ago, celebrating Blockbuster Summer, this time on Total Reboot. (laughs) 